Thank you for joining us for the Sydney Ideas and Australian Book Review event. Um, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Peter Rose. I'm the editor of Australian Book Review. We are gathered this evening on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and I want to acknowledge them as the traditional owners. I pay my respects to elders past and present and to the elders of other communities in Australia. As editor of Australian Book Review, I'm here on campus all week undertaking another editorial residency at the university. The first of these was back in 2014 and I'd like to take this opportunity at the start to thank Professor Barbara Kane, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and, so uh, and Social Sciences present tonight for enabling me to spend time on the campus spreading the word about what the magazine has to offer and commissioning articles of all kinds from staff and postgrad students. And I'm looking forward to meeting a large number of them tomorrow when I lead a workshop on the subject. It's always a real pleasure for us to work with prose and, um, and uh, there are certainly, uh, Sydney Ideas is a dream team to uh, work with and I want to thank my colleague Meredith Hall for making it happen. This is our third event uh, with Social um, uh, Sydney Ideas. Um, in February, uh, Kim Williams gave the inaugural ABR um, annual patrons lecture and um, uh, the next of these events also I think details flashing up um, and I recommend it um, is uh, uh, with Alan Atkinson, a very distinguished historian, uh, now emeritus professor and based at the, at the University of Sydney. Um, Ellen is the inaugural ABR Raft Fellow and just last week I got his brilliant essay, How Do We Live With Ourselves? Australia's National Conscience, a really superb uh, 8,000 word essay which we look forward to publishing in September and Alan will be the guest on the 5th of September in this space talking about what I think is a really exceptional um, article. Tonight we're here to celebrate the work of another ABR fellow. Michael Aiken, on my immediate left, will read from his fellowship project and discuss it with David Malouf, the writer who nominated him for the ABR Laureates Fellowship. Many of you will be aware that much has happened at Australian Book Review in recent years. It's, I think, a transformed uh, magazine and that's all to the good. We enjoy partnerships now all around uh, Australia, including this one with the University of Sydney. We offer three international prizes, including the ABR Elizabeth Jolly Short Story Prize, whose three shortlisted stories appear in our new August issue, which is on sale tonight. We also offer the happily um, alliterative um, uh, Peter Porter Poetry Prize, which is for the poets in the room, and I know there are a few, is open, open again uh, as of last Friday, closes in December with prize money totaling $7,500 and an Arthur Boyd print thrown in too from one of his collaborative works with the great Peter Porter. We now have a, a very active digital edition that helps us to go around the world in ABR online, we offer several writers' fellowships of this kind each year and we'll be offering more. 
uh, and uh, more, more recently, um, we, uh, Arts Update was added to our repertoire, a significant expansion of ABR's arts journalism, one that I think is transforming what the magazine um, represents. And there's more to come too. I had a very auspicious conversation with an institution today about a possible major prize to be announced uh, in coming weeks or months. So there's a lot happening at the magazine. And I thank my colleagues who are here tonight from Melbourne and board member Ian Dixon, of course. Cultural philanthropy has transformed the magazine as it has benefited innumerable arts organisations around the country. Generous donations from almost 500 donors and ABR patrons have enabled us to add the programs I've mentioned and to increase our payments to writers at a time when paid work is it a premium for freelance reviewers and creative writers? I want to take this opportunity to thank all my fellow patrons. ABR is most grateful, and so are a lot of Australian writers. On your seat, you'll find information about the patrons program. If you want to consider, uh, need more information, want to consider becoming a patron, please speak to me or Amy or Christopher tonight. In 2014, to mark these auspicious developments at ABR and to find another way of putting some of these donations to good use, ABR decided to name its first laureate. David Maloof was a unanimous first choice and I and the board were thrilled when David accepted our invitation. For half a century now, as you, this audience well knows, David Maloof has created some of the great works of modern Australian literature. He's a renowned poet, novelist, short story writer, memoirist, playwright, essayist, and librettist. His prizes are many and include the Prix Femina Etranger, the Neustadt Prize, the Impact Award, the Miles Franklin Award, and many state awards. Earlier this year, he received the Australia Council Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature. And it's wonderful to welcome tonight the CEO, Tony Grabowski and Jill Eddington of Literature at the Australia Council. David Maloof's works are read and appreciated around the world. When we announced the laureateship in 2014, ABR also noted David's principled and eloquent advancement of literature and his generosity to readers and writers alike and indeed to this magazine. David is a great upholder, encourager, enabler, and a wonderful friend and subtle guide to many young Australian artists. Our aim in 2014 was twofold, to honour this remarkable Australian writer, but also to invite him to assist a young colleague through the creation of the ABR Laureates Fellowship worth $5,000. And I remember my conversation with David, he said, with a chuckle, he said, the thing I like about this is that the laureate doesn't get the money and it goes to the, to the, uh, to the fellow. I was delighted when David introduced me to the work of young Sydney writer Michael Aiken and nominated him as the laureate's fellow. They had met, I understand, when both poets were shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Poetry award not long before, an award that David went on to win for his great volume of poems, Earth Hour. Michael Aiken's collection is titled A Vicious Example and 
uh, th that volume is on sale tonight uh, with the magazine. Michael has used his fellowship in a most original way. He's clearly been inspirited by it and one might even say slightly diabolized by this fellowship. He has written a book-length poem of huge scope and ambition, a poem about revenge, resentment and remorse, as he has put it. We publish in this issue book one of Satan Repentant, but we would have needed to go to 200 pages or so to publish the whole thing, uh, which will, I'm sure, emerge in book form um, uh, uh, before long. We published that in the August issue, um, which is, as I mentioned, available uh, tonight. Michael will uh, read from this long poem and, and maybe some other work uh, at the start and then discuss it with, with David and later there will be time for questions uh, after which you'll have an opportunity to meet both writers. So please uh, join me in, in welcoming Michael Aiken and David Malouf. Thank you all for being here on this um, rainy night. I would like to pay tribute, first of all, to the imagination that uh, Peter and his board showed uh, in when they decided to elect a laureate, instead of um, giving that laureate some money, what they gave him, or her, as it might have been, uh, the chance to, to do something for some younger writer. And, and, you know, not just do something, but first of all, give them some money, uh, but then offer them uh, help, mentorship in some kind of way, in writing some long work which might take them three to six months to actually achieve. And Peter himself uh, was, to, is, was to be the, the mentor of that, and has been in this case. Um, so what we were really looking for was somebody who uh, had work and had published work and clearly established a voice, but who had some large project that they wanted and that they would need money partly to finance and they would need time for, and although they might get on and do it quite well for themselves, would be happy, as writers very often are, to have someone to talk about the work with. And that's what Peter provided. Um, I first met Michael, as Peter said, at the Premier's Awards two years ago in um, Sydney here. And we had a long conversation, got along quite easily with one another. He and his wife, Kate, were both together and we had quite a bit of talk. And in the course of that, uh, Michael told me that he had uh, a long work which he was engaged on and that it was uh, on Satan and um, Satan's repentance. And uh, I was a bit astonished by that, uh, partly because it seemed a long way from the poems of Michael that, I'd, that I knew, uh, but also because it sounded so huge. I was thinking of Blake, I was thinking of Milton, and um, 
I looked at him and I thought, that's pretty, uh, pretty brave. So when the possibility came up of choosing someone who had already published work but had some kind of project, I remembered Michael's project and um, it was that as much of what I knew as the previous work that made me certain that he was somebody who might take the opportunity and carry the work right through. And um, what I was ask, going to ask Michael to do, if he doesn't mind, is to read a couple of poems from his previous volume uh, and introduce us to that voice and then we might talk about the kind of voice he needed to go on and discover for writing this poem. Um, as you'll see, and this is what attracted me about the poems immediately, um, these poems were very actual and up-to-date and streetwise, and the language was very down-to-earth and about daily life and showed an amazingly observant eye about things as they are right now, and you'll hear that in the poems. And it was, what was of huge interest to me was how he was going to go on and find a language for Satan. Um, Michael, if you can read us a couple of poems. Thank you very much, David, and thank you, Peter, and the ABR. I'd also like to say thank you to the ABR board and patrons and my fellow ABR contributors and also the ABR readers and subscribers. Um, I won't go on more about the publication, um, but I think it's a wonderful institution that's contributing so much to the cultural life of this country, and I'm so pleased to be able to be part of this fellowship and this event tonight, and I'm also so glad to see so many family and friends and colleagues who've braved the weather and friends who are colleagues, um, and also so many fellow artists, so many of the people that I myself know here. I can see novelists, poets, songwriters, photographers. Um, as I say, that's just the people I know. So I feel very honoured um, in the first instance that David, you selected my work for or myself to create this work, but then also that so many people are coming together to talk about this and I hope literature and art in general for Australia. Um, as... Um, David was saying, I'll read a couple, just two pieces from my first book. I should say as well, thank you to my fellow poet, Alan Wern, who is also the publisher of this book. Um, speaking of institutions in Australian art, I think that Alan is um, a living institution of Australian art, really. Um, and I'm not really being hyperbolic when I say that. So this is, I think it's the last poem in my, my book, and um, it's called Victoria Street, Darlinghurst. As a sign of respect, four cops in their brand new bright yellow combat look caps slide on some leather gloves before touching a half-naked invalid. Anything said is lost with the lights as a gas truck rounds the corner with its frozen load over the hill to the city swimming pool perched at the foot of St Mary's Cathedral to refill yet another storage tank. Down the road in the palm grove, in the gardens, the flying fox colony, leather fruit in leafless trees are starting their nightly pilgrimage across the city out to Moore Park and every other fig street and flowering native, from the corner of Cleveland and South Dowling to Burwood Sandicare Memorial, where, in the noonish heat of a pre-office hours weekday morning, a guy carries a stack of hairless piglets, trussed and thawing on his back, 
along Clarendon Place as the council car park films. Halfway up the steepest incline on Enmore Road, a bus driver stands in the doorway of a takeaway, arms folded, smooth hair, crisp shorts ending just above the knee, tall white socks just below. An elderly passenger on a passing bus turns to her friend and says, now there goes a man who cares about his appearance. I'm glad some people like the humour of that one. Uh, and this is the other one that, that David asked me to read. Um, sorry, I'm going to touch this microphone again because it's making me go cross-eyed. Um, this is the other poem from my book that, that David picked out, which a few people have pointed out to me, and I'm really glad for it. It's right in the middle of the book for a reason, um, because to me it's central to my practice in a lot of ways, but it's also quite different to just about everything else in the book. It's called Anniversary, and I wrote it for my partner Kate. And I wrote it partly in response to, at the time I was working on writing reviews of two collections, one both by US poets, one by August Kleinzala and one by Stephen Burt. And they both had recently gotten married and one had a poem in there for his first anniversary and the other had a poem for, I think it was his fifth anniversary. And as happens when I write book reviews, it got me thinking about my own work and I thought, oh, I've never written anything for Kate. I've never written anything really, you know, about our relationship or anything like that. And I thought, oh, what sort of anniversaries would I celebrate? And we're not married. We, our eldest child was born over 12 years ago um, and we now have four children, um, but we are not married on paper. Um, so there, there's not really any anniversary to celebrate, and that's what prompted this poem. Anniversary. What anniversary are we supposed to be at? Since we're yet to marry, and like me, you never wrote down the date. But had you, had I, what date would we use? Our first child? More than four years ago, we, tried, we agreed to try, and he arrived 12 months later, with three months to give up smoking. Or when we first lived together, three months, give or take, before that. If we need a paper signed by both, our anniversary will need to be later, by a few months or so, till our first cash account, or else the lease. But who wrote down the day I awoke with you in my heart? Each, each seat I'd take, leaving space for the possibility of you. For every conversation, no matter who it was with, to be addressed to you, in my head, on the bus, while you were overseas. Or could we pin it back to that first day I saw you, I know you didn't see me, staring at your nails, barely speaking, but perfect. I know that day, but make no celebration of it. Anniversaries are for recurring things, birthdays, deaths and weddings. But what we have and what occurred that day exists beyond the myth mathematics gives to the possibility for plurality and duplication. Each day its own and only anniversary to celebrate. Thank you for that, Michael. It's a long way from that world of Darlinghurst Road or from that very celebratory fam family poem, relationship poem to Satan. Um, why Satan? How did you get there? Well, um, is that coming through? I can't hear myself. Uh, it's interesting you say that because my first thought when you said that is, well, I wrote the Darlinghurst poem while I was at work on a 12 or 16 hour non-stop shift and some people might 
turn their <laughs> mind towards hell in such a situation. Um, and it's also interesting that in, in the responses that came out to my book, one of the things that came up recurrently in reviews was that there's a sort of an apocalyptic vision going on in there and, and um, there was comparisons to sort of Ballard and things like that. So there is an undercurrent that people picked up on in the book, I think, not necessarily satanic, but certainly kind of diabolic, I suppose, or apocalyptic. Um, but to answer your question about how I got it, um, it was actually, originally the idea was put to me by my brother, who I think I've told you before, he and I um, very much grew up in a, in a home that was not particularly Christian, but aware that, you know, being a sort of white middle class family from Australia, we, we come from a, a Judeo-Christian background, somewhere along the line. Um, but we were both also enormously interested in um, mythologies and cultural traditions, not just our own, but from all around the community that we had around us and that we could find out about around the world. And we had other friends like that as well who would just sort of go down rabbit holes about different um, ideas within a culture. And part of what really appealed to us was kind of not to disrespect those religions, but was the fiction of it, was the idea of whether there was an internal logic that, that was sustained in the same way that you might critique a novel or a poem um, along those same lines. And he said to me one day, years ago, out of the blue, he just said, um, I've got an idea for a story for you to write. Um, he said, what would happen if Satan decided to repent? And I just sort of thought, oh, I don't, don't really know. I hadn't really thought about it. And he said, well, it would upset all the demons in hell because he's abandoning them. It would upset all the angels in heaven because he's trying to get back into heaven. And if he does, then they're out of a job. And so they would all come together and, and war and it would bring about Armageddon. And he made it sound very neat. And I went, okay, um, makes sense to me. And because he, he's a very creative thinker and he's very, he loves to pick apart the ideas behind things as well and, and will do so endlessly. Um, and I didn't really think about it more, and then I bumped into an old friend of ours from school who I very rarely see, and, and I mentioned it to him. I said, oh, my brother's put this idea to me. What would happen if Satan decided to repent? And he said, well, that would bring about Armageddon. <laughs> and, and it was, you know, for me, it just really sparked something. That there was this thread through these people who I don't see very often anymore, but who are still very dear to me and who are very much a part of my own creative being. Um, who had this resonance, and I kind of felt nominated. You know, my brother said to me, this is an idea for you to write. And I think he was thinking novel at the time. Um, but I was also reading a lot of Milton around that time and writing a lot of poetry. And so I did think the two were kind of moving towards each other. Um, and I thought about it for years without doing much um, beyond thinking and occasionally having ideas for the voice behind it. Um, until we spoke and until this fellowship was put forward. And I have to say, it's interesting that you say that um, it's ambitious. I can't remember the, quite, quite the word you used, maybe courageous, um, to take this on. My first thought when I was offered the fellowship was, well, anyone could get away with saying, I just write 20 poems and say that's a sequence. There you go, there's a long verse work and I could do that um, pretty safely. Most of the poems in my book are, you know, one page, two pages. But Satan was hovering in the background and it just seemed too appropriate. And obviously I didn't know at the time that, that you had remembered our conversation when I mean, it was a, a fairly sort of hectic night at the awards night. Um, 
So I didn't realise that you had that in mind, but it did seem just too appropriate not to do it. But I, I felt real trepidation in writing it, I have to say, um, in, in a way that I haven't for a long time with writing anything, which I, I'm really pleased about, that I feel like I confronted myself in a way. Yeah, I was uh, interested at, well, two things. One is, even when you talk about the Judeo-Christian tradition, within that, the element of that which most people these days would hardly take seriously is the devil, you know, is Satan. Mm. And uh, I must say that the, I mean, it's a very, very interesting idea because what happens in this poem, and I, I don't need to explain it because I think Michael's explained already what, what it is, but when he goes to God and asks to be forgiven and taken back into heaven, I mean, what God says to him is, yes, I could do that for you, but you have a test to go through. And the test to go through is that you must be incarnated, you must become human and go through all the pain and suffering and glories and defeats and all the rest of it of what it is to be human. Now, that is a, that's the original bit of it because it's kind of something like the incarnation of Jesus, but it's the opposite. And as Michael says, the, the, uh, the thing that is the drama of all of that is not just Satan's um, going through the whole human thing and being tested, but the fact that he has to do that with everybody against him. The saints believe that he is, and Jesus believes that he's hypocritical. Uh, and that he's doing this for some other malicious reason. So they try to undermine him in every possible way and create situations which will make him expose himself as, as, as hypocritical. And the demons, of course, are absolutely infuriated that they've been betrayed and lost their leader. So the drama's big, and the psychological thing of Satan immediately uh, closes that question of can we take Satan seriously because he's really human. Mm. Um, do you want to read something from sure. that? Or? I thought I'd start with um, a piece from the excerpt that is in the ABR, which is the first book of the, the book. Um, so this is beginning at the beginning where Satan decides that he's going to repent. Satan whispers to himself... We must away. The day has broken long since we saw the folly of our crime. My pride has made me sick. My pride has made me me. I am ill with myself and vomit it out like a dog that guzzles oil. I will not bathe in the bile of my pride, the fester of my hatred, the bog of all my malice any longer. Eternity is long enough to see that I was wrong. Not wrong to God, but wrong to me. And now I swoon forever in my own infested bowel. But how, how to speak to he who hates my hate? Would enough be made of my pious attempts if only for a moment? I must know I must try, else it cannot be genuine. Yet what hope there is, is nothing. Enough. I am left no choice but take the risk. Submit to his rage if that is what it is. Any less would be a lie. An attendant white, winged and hidden above the enemy's lair, takes to flight at these words unwholesome to its ear. 
ascends the caverns of the lieutenant's lieutenant, the hooved king of pigs and vermin, to report what has been heard. Now the scene moves. So that was a spy for hell going to dob on him, basically. Um, this next bit is the enemy approaches Peter. So Satan arrives in heaven and is surprised to meet St. Peter, who, depending on your theology, um, is not a saint, um, is just a human, and wasn't there when Satan used to be an angel. On burnt and broken pinions, the morning star implored the earth to drag himself out of hell. Bedraggled, torn, he burning yet from the fires of that place so recently escaped, soared across the width of the world for a ladder, a, a path, a rope. Finding none was forced to creak and howl like an albatross across the starry expanse, cold but illumined to those gates such ages since cast out of in disgrace. And that one named saint by his supporters, so late since Lucifer's days in heaven installed to guard the gates, stepped forward with his record and a hand raised for the guards. What seek you here, enemy of everything? spoke the immortal mortal saint. At this new slight, not so much to the previous glorious esteem in which the star once was held, as to the earnest, hard-worked journey just completed. The fixed mind and high disdain he believed himself in himself to have mastered, reared up at once and the beast returned, ripped off the head of that authoritative saint, muscles bulging and sinews contorted to the pulse of insulted pride, dismembered his corpse and flagellated the same with its own limbs, bellowing, how fucking dare you? Before that magic host dwelling within could lay aside their harps and contemplations to rescue their murdered friend. So not to look at the right hand as he approached, Satan lowered his head, I know, I'm going, and dropped like a stone, sleek and dead-weighted by the grief and guilt renewed anew, immediately to reappear in his black pit. Uh, well, that, that's obviously not uh, the heavy pentameters of Milton, but it's a long way from the language of anniversary or... or yeah. how, 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 did you, how do you see yourself doing that? Um, I think that... It, where do I start? I suppose I tried not to be too analytical about it as I went. I knew that I'm not as good at counting beats and punctuation as Milton is, for example. Um, and I fleetingly thought about really trying to drum that into myself with rhythms and then I just thought actually I think I should just go where I feel with this um, and again it, it was quite liberating in a sense to know that some of this was going to be published so um, in a sense I could do whatever I wanted with it and and put it forward you know to to stand or fall on its own merits um, um, even more so than you would normally be able to do with poetry um, and the voice kind of emerged it, it was really driven by, by the Satan character initially, I think. And I think the fact that I also wasn't too caught up in the theology of it, um, and I tried to avoid wanting to prove points, meant that I really just lived with him, as you say, as a person. I, I wrote him and wrote all the characters, Jesus included, as if they were humans, you know, with their own urges and, and interests. Um, and the voice just really then started to suggest itself. And I, I was aware of Milton. I, you know, I had read Paradise Lost a few times and I'd 
written essays on Paradise Lost and things like that. And I was aware of some of Milton's values behind that work and some of the criticism of it. But as I said before with my book, um, within that, I think some of the influences that I have from people like, not, not Ballard so much, but someone like William Burroughs was a great inspiration to me early on. And I think that shows in, in the book. And that has then filtered through again as well. So some of the really kind of over-the-top melodrama that you see in something like Naked Lunch, I feel actually permeates this new work as well. The, the fact that um, it was from the beginning, from what you read, you read from the beginning of the poem, and right at the beginning, it's immediately dramatic. I mean, it's not your voice, but Satan's mm. voice that you're trying to create. So I, I just wondered what kind of distance... You, you, you felt you had to assume from colloquial 21st century Australia, you, you had to assume for Satan because you've got to make a language which people will accept yes. as his, his language. And once they've done that, then the transition is made. Is, is that what you tried to do? Without consciously thinking about it as much as you just described, but I think yes, and I think probably part of the process for me was that I had also written a novel not long before this, which is told in the first person by an Australian, but set in the 19th century, and, and someone who's meant to have had a completely different education to me in the UK, and then or whatever it was called at that time. Um, and so I... That whole book is written in quite a different voice as well and sits somewhere between this and my previous poetry, I think, as well, in terms of voice and writing. Um, and as I say, I tried to go with the intuition more, which is not natural for me. I do tend to overanalyse what I'm doing, but I just went with what I felt worked. And really, I just found Satan interesting as a character. And again, it was informed by, by Milton, you know... Like, Milton's known for his Satan having more personality than God and, yeah, yeah. and that being sort of the most blasphemous thing in his work. Um, so it was informed by that sense. But he, you know, even Milton's language is not the language of the streets in no. his day either because he, he realises too, as Blake does afterwards, and that's, I don't know if, you, if Blake was an influence as well, he, he works in exactly the same area. Both of them realised that if you're going to put words in the mouth of a character like Satan or God or Jesus or Beelzebub, then it can't be colloquial no. because we're not going to believe that. So this, this is even in Milton's case. It's a, a manufactured language. It's a question of getting away with it. It is, and I think... Um it's interesting, I also, I didn't want to go back to Milton, you know, I didn't want to duplicate Milton's voice, I didn't want to sort of put on this fake Renaissance language, um, which is the death of so much writing. Um, I think one thing that I did, one particular technique that emerged for me was wherever there's a split infinitive, um, not just Satan, but pretty much everyone in there drops the two. Um, it, which I quite like because it, it gives you greater economy, it gives you a certain control over the rhythm, but it also does give you that, that defamiliarising, that, that kind of strangeness to the voice without it sounding like, oh, you're trying to sound like Shakespeare or you're trying to sound like whatever. It just does sound un it's slightly unnatural and enough to maybe make that supernatural yeah. character real. And then, look, the other thing is that we, we've already talked about what the 
the drama consists in. But there's something else in the work which I found very interesting, and that is um, something about yourself which gets into the work, because the work ends up being um, an attempt to believe in uh, poetry, uh, also an attempt to believe uh, fully in life, uh, which, and that is what, that's what Satan fails at. So it, the end is really very dark and it ends in some kind of despairing place. To what extent were you, did you find yourself exploring things about yourself you didn't know were going to be there? Um, I mean, it, is, it, is, it comes through in the end as a much more personal work than a purely dramatic work. Yeah, did that surprise you? It did. It did very much. Um, but I think once I was faced with this thing of saying, well, what do you actually want to do here? You know, I mean, I, I don't have a, a theological agenda. I don't want to try and prove a point about, you know, the true nature of Satan or something like that. Um, but having created this situation, which I believed in, in the way you're talking about, and, and was drawn into what would come out of it. And I suppose the linchpin to that is that along with Satan's test being that he has to live as a human, it's also that he has to live as a human who doesn't know any more than any other human. So he doesn't know that he's Satan and he doesn't know that there definitely is a God and he doesn't, he doesn't have any of those, that absolute certainty. And that's part of the challenge that God puts to him is that you're not going to have a millennia to decide whether you want to apologise for something. You know? You're Just not going to have time. Yeah, you've... You've got moment to moment to get things right yeah. or not, and you're not going to know. You might have an inkling that maybe you're Satan. You know, there's probably a lot of people in the world who at times feel like they're the worst person <laughs> in the world or who feel like they're very special for some reason or who think they're the Messiah or, you know, any number of things um, or just believe that they are inherently special. I mean, I would hope that everyone feels that in some way, but, but that's all he has, the same as any person does. And that really did open that box of sort of existential introspection and, and, um, and even in the moments where he does then sort of stop and, and realise that it, he really has just seen an angel or God really has just stood at the foot of his bed, he is then confronted with, well, how much do they actually matter, you know? What does it matter to be God if, if you let the world be the way it is or... What, what value is there in someone like Satan asking forgiveness of the person who created him with the flaws that have made him commit the crimes he's committed, you know? Um, so it really unravelled itself to me, which is quite different to the way I normally write. Uh, that's very interesting because the work does... Well, it, it had to become personal in some kind of way, and it does, uh, but I think it ends in quite a dark place. Mm. Do you want to read something else from that? Sure. Um, I've got my little list of, of what I thought might be worth reading. So what I'm going to read is from book four, which is when Satan remembers, he's, he's on his deathbed basically as a human, and he remembers that actually he's the devil, and that before that he used to be the favourite angel in heaven, and remembers everything that happened before, and that he has since... Um, asked for forgiveness 
and has a lot of that conversation kind of with himself that we just talked about. Okay, here we go. So, as I say, he's, he's in his hospital bed and God has turned up and tried to convince him to, to um, not give up and he's now thinking to himself, body failing, inner vision, freely roaming, before and after birth, all eternity since creation onwards, the war, the fall, genesis of Nephilim, countless schemes, infractions, abuses, his guilt returns full force yet more abhorrence at his lord's self-righteousness. That consummate politician turning every flaw to gold, all errors to tests, unimputable by man. Perceiving all plans, the narrowness of omniscience over felt experience of finite lives, Lucifer is astounded. How did it come to this? I, ever a prince in my homeland, in exile, in the vastness of my own dignity, Reduced by reason to groveling, feeling such need to grovel. Forget judgment. Who is he to take the object of my penitence? Yes, I have done wrong, a great many wrongs. Yet who would enumerate the souls, tally the crimes and say one billion tortured lives is not so bad as one billion plus one? If the sin be sinful, if the crime be horrendous, incontinent, gratuitous, what matters the scale? Or, if scale matters, why a billion preferred before one billion and one? Has he not tortured? Has he not induced his children to most debasing contortions, tricks and tests to prove their unquestioning loyalty? When he allowed me afflict Job, where lay the guilt? Some blood pools in his palms yet, some avarice and disgust harbours in his shoulders. If he is everything, then he is crime. And this is who I yearn to recognise my repentance? When did God ever repent? When did he stop and recognise the immoderacy of inflammating a servant for lighting the wrong incense? It is a Stockholm syndrome, or else the glory of fame blinds me to his frailties. Who is he to forgive? But what then? If not God, then who? Who can absolve these warts on my soul? Who can cure me? Surely I need someone who has repented of crime already, who has proven their remorse and moved through the other side to stop and sign my pass that I may join them. Or if I have done all already necessary to warrant that trust, well then I am such a one who can make the waiver true. For God, who would creep in the sewer looking for a light? Even in your own reflection, you will only see excrement if you gaze at a pool of effluent. Necessarily, I must look away from him as a source of goodness and forgiving. Not in spite, not in defiance, but for his irrelevance. I am not God and do not want to be, nor Empyrean even. Human is sufficient to perceive the vaults of of potentiality, to witness the infinite within my own soul. might be a good moment to stop, is it? And I ask if there are any questions people would like to ask. I, I think you can see there very clearly um, how personal 
that voice has, has, has come to you. I mean, it takes a lot, quite a long time, um, and it's, it's your progress through the poem. It's also the reader's progress through the poem to have that voice take over completely and become utterly convincing and utterly personal. I mean, it, that's a, 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 a wonderful thing to, to observe happening, where, you know, where the writing really takes over and um, you become subservient almost to what it's now trying to do and trying to say. But it's very convincing. Thank you. I'm really glad you used the word convincing. Um, any, any question? Hi, Paul speaking. Um, who are you, who's your audience? Who are you trying to connect with when you were on this uh, task? Like in a, in a secular society as, as we are, ruled mainly by uh, religious right-wingers uh, you know, that, that we have now. Does it see if that's a source of inspiration or you know, did you have someone, an audience particular audience it's, in mind? It's interesting you say that. I mean, I, I think, as for most poets, because there's basically no money in poetry generally, though I've been very fortunate with this fellowship, poets are really free to not care about an audience <laughs> to a large degree, um, which is a very liberating thing. But then also, conversely, having this fellowship and knowing it was going to be published again, I felt kind of obliged to actually write the work for itself. That, that's um, one answer, but particularly to your point, I was mindful, I was mindful for a start that talking about Christianity is not very fashionable in my circles. Um, my peers um, and the people I look up to as well in contemporary Australian poetry don't generally write about it except to very heavily criticise some of the wrongs that have happened um, amongst various religions. Um, but as I said at the start, I was also mindful that um, for, for all of us really, whether we were raised in a religion or not, the Judeo-Christian tradition has shaped you know, what we think of as right and wrong, the way we punish people, whether we think people should be punished or not, all those sorts of things, and really affects our lives in, in a lot of different ways. So it was kind of for everyone as well. And I, I do come around to some of the issues you were talking about with um, the groups who kind of co-opt religion for, for political purposes. Um, one of the things that emerged for me through that existential investigation was, was the idea that, um, as I sort of got to at that point, you have to make your own meaning in life, I think. Um, and if you have Satan believing that as well, you quickly find Jesus also doing that and the whole notion of absolute good and absolute evil becoming quite um, fraudulent, I think. And so I, I, I have used language in there that I think you would probably find resonant with some of the people you're talking about or resonant of them. So, you know, terms like with us or against us and, and um, you know, fighting for the greater good and things like that um, do emerge because the, the poem is also about a war between two sides who both think they're right. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Michael and David. Um, my, my question, actually, before you made that last comment, kind of ties in with that last uh, comment, and I was wondering, you said that um, you didn't set out to make any theological points, but, uh, yeah, I was wondering whether, in the process of writing it, certain, yeah, critiques of, uh, yeah, certain kinds of theology 
um, or perspectives on you perspective theological perspectives emerged? I mean, that's a big question, so perhaps you could just touch on it. Thanks, and thanks, Luke. Nice, nice to see you here, another fellow poet. Um, there, were, there were a few sort of pet theological points that I made. Um, again, I'm not particularly committed to any religion, but I've had an interest in particularly the, the argument between Protestantism and Catholicism. Um, and again, as an admirer of Milton and knowing that he had his own points to prove. So I do, you know, the dismembering of St. Peter, for example, was a clear goal for Protestantism. <laughs> um, there is another saint who I put in hell in the, in the poem. I, I was very tempted to go down Dante's path of putting everyone you hate in hell. Um, but I've resisted so far, uh, apart from one saint who um, I, I think is particularly undeserving. Um, I am also still possibly adding to the book, so at the moment I may also put my least favourite atheist in hell, um, but I haven't done that yet. Yeah, sure. It, it, it is quite interesting when you look at um, uh, the way people work when they're writing, that although people may not necessarily believe, say, in the Christian story, uh, and all its details, we've been brought up so much on not just those stories themselves, but the literature that belongs to those stories, that they still make a very easy way uh, of going into discussions that otherwise would seem quite abstract. And I, I just think, for example, you know, you don't have to be a believer in any of that to be utterly swept away by Dante. And you don't have to be a believer in any of that to think that, for example, um, in, in the Brothers Karamazov, the story of the Grand Inquisitor isn't a, a huge revelation to your thinking about um, the, 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 the institution of the church and the institution of, of um, fanatical political things. So we, we continually go back to those known stories as ways of talking about uh, problems which are still open. So, you know, I mean, I think you, you need to put a, a work like this in the line of all of those things. It's part of the, the, that, the, that culture which makes it um, possible for us very quickly to go into a a, a, a dramatic situation which can reveal its own arguments. Now a question from the uh, recipient of the anniversary poem. Um, yeah, I've had the opportunity to congratulate you before, Michael, on the poem. Um, but again, congratulations. It's a triumph. Thank you. Um, so my question for you is, um, is this. As you were writing the poem, conceiving of how Satan would be te tested and weaving that into the narrative, in fact, we weaving the narrative often from those tes that testing, were there any analogies in contemporary politics or in any other fiction that you consciously drew upon or that revealed themselves to you after the fact? Um, I think it, it was really... Initially, I didn't want to have allegories or things like that in there. I thought it was better to avoid it. But it... Again, talking about sort of going with the intuition, it just seemed absolutely impossible to ignore the sort of language that's been used uh, 
this century um, in terms of, like I said before, with us or against us and, and ideas of right or wrong and, you know, thinking about things like um, the conflicts that have been started in the Middle East over the last 15 years that were actually referred to as a crusade when they were begun and things like that by, you know, the US president at the time. Um, that sort of thing was in my mind. I really didn't want to make an argument about those things, about, you know, who's right or wrong in what they're saying, but really it, it did spur me to highlight um, the destructive nature of that sort of absolutism. Um, so, yes, short answer to your question. I, I would also like to point out as well, because I know, especially, David, you said before that that test is, is a really critical aspect of the creativity, that the idea of, of the test being that Satan has become human arose from my conversation with my brother as well. So I would like to acknowledge that that is, again, part of his creativity as well as my own. Um, uh, with Michael's permission, uh, a quick question for, uh, for, for David. I think we might call this editor's licence. Um, I think we're all agreed Milton's one of the most prodigiously uh, virtuosic of poets. Um, We've heard you speak, I've heard you speak wonderfully of Herbert and Marvell and Dunn, but I just wonder if you would talk briefly about your regard for your interest in Milton. For? For Milton himself. Uh, yeah, look, I, um, I was quite keen on Milton. I mean, he's never been my absolutely favourite poet in English, I must say. Um, and that's partly a question of the language. You know, and I, his language is very, very artificial, deliberately chosen as artificial for the reasons that I said. You know, he was trying to work out um, what kind of non-temporal uh, and um, non-specific language you could use. And I think that's, um, that, that becomes a difficulty in the poem, but dramatically, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, the way that you are gathered into those discussions between people, uh, it's a bit like a Thomas Mann novel almost, you know. The, the people argue things out in that way, but also the descriptions of the battles and the, uh, all of that is, you know, I mean, wonderfully, if you give yourself over to it, wonderfully involving. But my favorite, um, Milton poems, in fact, are something like Lycidas and the, um, the um, Penseroso and L'Allegro, and, uh, you know, which are very, very different from Paradise Lost. And actually, the Samson Agonistes, which I think is really, a, a, you know, a, a smaller work than, than, than um, Paradise Lost, but absolutely unforgettable. Um, I, I, I might just say that I, I, I grew up in a world where we were made to learn poems off by heart. And uh, at the age of about 10, I learned L'Allegro off by heart. You know, it was an exercise. It was set as a, set as a, um, as a piece of homework to learn. I've never forgotten it. And, um, you know, the rhythms of it are just part of the rhythms of what I think of as being English poetry. And that seems to me to be the best way of acquiring poetry. But I'm grateful to, to Milton, uh, even for all the time that it took me to do it. And I, I know that people think that today that that's a form of child abuse. But um, <laughs> it's one I would, um, 
I would not want a royal commission about. <laughs> Is there a last question? If not, I shall move up here and, 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 uh, and uh, thank some people, but uh, particularly, of course, our wonderful uh, speakers this evening. I think we've just been treated to, well, from my point of view, one of the more uh, interesting and sympathetic um, discussions about the gestation of a, of a creative work. And it's done with real ease and, 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 and grace. And we're both, both very, very grateful to you, Michael, for creating the work and David for choosing Michael, bringing him to ABR and, and leading such, a, I think, a, a fascinating conversation. We look forward to the publication of the full work. I'm just really looking forward to he reading about the reaction when it's published in the US South. I think that will be really very, very interesting. But meanwhile, as you know, um, you have an opportunity now to read book one of the work and I encourage you to do so. Michael will be moving up and available to talk and sign the, sign the poem and also his volume, of course, A Vicious Example, which is on sale tonight at the special price of, of $20, $20. We're most grateful to Sydney Ideas. Thank you again. Uh, Meredith, thank you to the university and, and Barbara as for, for uh, enabling this event and so much more with ABR. We're most grateful to the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences here. Thank you for coming on this tempestuous, uh, tempestuous um, evening and uh, would you please join me in thanking um, David Maloof and Michael Aiken. Thank you.